And if a storm were to come up, and Hudson Bay is 800 miles across, I think, 800 kilometers, 800 miles, anyhow, a giant frickin' distance across, if an easterly wind came up, you would just be hammered with nowhere to go. And then just to make matters worse, when you try to sleep, that section of coast has got a huge concentration of polar bears. Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. This episode goes back to 2019. We talked to Stefan Kesting, 1,000 miles through the Canadian wilderness. Awesome trip. Stefan's awesome. Great communicator. Very excited to get into this one. And by the way, this is part one of Stefan's story. It was a really long story, and so we had to break it up into two. But this is part one. We're going to play part two next Thursday. So be listening. Or you can just listen to the original episode that's the whole thing. But you'll have to find it in the archives. Let's go ahead and jump in. Where, where are you coming from today? Let's start with that. Uh, today you find me in Vancouver, British Columbia. So that's the west coast of Canada, a couple hours north of Seattle for any of the Americans listening. Oh, man. Beautiful place. Now, and now is that home or are you on a trip right now? No, it, it, it's definitely home. It's not where I was born. I was born in eastern Canada, uh, Toronto area, and then spent time in Montreal. But I came out here to the west coast about 20, 25 years ago to do. I'd figured out a way. How to, I had a small scholarship after finishing my uh, my undergrad, and I didn't know if I wanted to use it or not. But then I found a supervisor who was who thought that me going out into the Arctic for a summer to do some research to float down a river through the tree line on the Anderson River and essentially survey the plant communities as you go through from forest out into the tundra was a good idea. And I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of sick of university, but this sounds like a pretty good deal. I'll make it, I'll use up that scholarship and I'll spend a summer out in the Arctic and I won't actually have to pay for it this time. Somebody else will be subsidizing it. So any, any chance I've gotten over the years, I've, I've headed North. I really love the North. And so I, along the way, I picked up a master's degree in Arctic botany. I don't use it at all anymore, but the, uh, it brought me out to British Columbia. And like so many people who come here, they tend to stay here. It explains in part the insane housing market and why some shack that some house that looks like it could be a crack shack and not on the beach and not on a mountain and not with a view is selling from well over a million dollars because everyone wants to live here or everyone wants to be a real estate developer here. Is that kind of a thing in Canada too? I just know here in the States, you know, it's like move out West for adventure. Um, you know, that's the biggest mountains, the biggest landscapes. Does it feel the same way in Canada coming from the east side? Yeah, it's very much so. It's, uh, I think the presence of large mountains opens the possibilities up for so many adventure sports. I mean, it's really quite possible to be downhill skiing in the morning, then uh, whitewater kayaking in the afternoon, and then possibly lounging on the beach or kite surfing in the evening. And just the vertical, the vertical landscape gives you so many options. And especially for the adrenaline sports, adventure sports community. I mean, you name it, just like, I don't know what the equivalent of Vancouver and Whistler would be in the States. Maybe, um, I don't know, 
Boulder. Yeah. It's a hub for everything from mountain biking to BMXing to snowboarding to paragliding to, hey, dude, let's use a kiteboarding kite and we'll put it on a unicycle and then we'll try to do this mountain bike trail, this downhill run on a unicycle (laughs) with a mountain bike kite and we'll film a video of it and it'll get views on YouTube. You you definitely get those off-the-wall adventures in any place uh, like British Columbia or like Vancouver. Uh, We're in Denver, so we get... Just all kinds of like publicity sure. stunt style uh, adventures and stuff. But uh, man, you mentioned a, a master's degree in Arctic botany. Holy, I see. I got a degree in biology. I feel like I'm not really using it. Um, yeah, that that is two different worlds from where you are now in uh, the grappling martial arts. What the heck? How do you get from Arctic botany to basically a professional jujitsu like teacher? Well, it, it was a lot of struggling. It was a lot of casting about trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grow, you know, grew old. And I mean, ever since I was eight years old, I was absolutely sure from eight to 18, I was 100% sure I wanted to be a physicist when I grew up. That, that was it. Physicist, probably an astrophysicist. And I got to first year university and I just hated physics. You know, I love reading up. It turned out what I loved about physics was reading about all the cool stuff, but not actually sitting in front of a computer and crunching numbers all day, all night, every day, every week, all year. So that was a really harsh course correction. And throughout that whole time, I had been training in martial arts. And, you know, I thought about running a martial arts school when I got older and, you know, what was I going to teach and all that kind of stuff and training really hard and trying to push myself. So I always did those two things in concert. But then when I got to university and started studying physics and realizing that I hated studying physics, that's a crisis of identity. It's tough when you've locked something in as, you know, I am a mountain climber. I am a physicist. I am a whatever, you know, I I am a husband. (laughs) And then you get divorced or you realize that you hate physics or, you know, I don't know, you break your legs and you can't climb mountains anymore. That's a really tough transition. So I went through that at age 18 and cast about trying to find something else. And the other thing that I'd really enjoyed doing was spending time in the outdoors and Ontario, you know, there isn't as much extreme sport, you know, it's similar terrain. I don't know, Minnesota, maybe right. The boundary waters canoe area, a butts onto the Northern part of Ontario. And a lot of Ontario looks like that, you know, the rolling Canadian shield and little lakes and, Ontario really is the home of canoeing in Canada. And I'd always done that. I'd always enjoyed it. I'd been on some shorter trips and I cast about and I figured that biology, which I'd hated in high school, I thought, well, maybe I should give it a try, right? There's the ecology part of evolution. There's the ecology part of biology. There's the evolution part of biology. There's the animal behavior part of biology. And these are all things that never, ever get discussed in high school. In high school, biology is, this is the kidney. The kidney consists of nephrons. Nephrons have four parts or memorizing the Krebs cycle yet again. I I mean, you did biology. How many times did you have to suffer through the Krebs cycle? Oh, yeah, man. It was was ridiculous. And yeah, it was just a totally different world at the university level than uh, the high school level, I will say. Kind of just didn't even think about it in high school. You know, Mm -hmm. it was just such an overview. Well, I, I mean, I'm getting off topic here, but I think a major component of why biology is so boring in high school is 
they don't talk about evolution, right? They, they, there's this the to the topic of evolution has become radioactive because if you start teaching evolution in high school, you can pretty much in certain parts of the state guarantee there's going to be parents picketing or parents pulling their kids out of class and any textbook that makes a big deal out of it is going to get passed over and they can pick another textbook that doesn't make a big deal out of it because, you know, they don't want to lose 10% of sales somewhere. But talking about biology without talking about evolution is like trying to talk about civil engineering and building bridges and building dams and building buildings without talking about gravity. Okay, so we've got to build this wall four feet thick. Well, why? Well, we can't say, but it's got to be four feet, feet thick, right? It's, <laughs> it's the underpinning of the entire study. It's the underpinning of the entire science because everything in biology is some way for a reason. And so that underlying thing, that underlying theme that holds it all together, I mean, in one sense, it's biochemistry. In another sense, though, it's, it's evolution. So I, I think that's why biology is so boring in high school. But yeah, so then I got into biology and then I moved more into the ecology part of it. And this led to more you know, field trips in terms of going out and doing research and finagling, doing uh, not marine biology, but lake biology and spending lots of time on rivers and lakes and out camping. And at the same time, I started doing some longer uh, solo canoe trips. I've started very organically. And then I did some really long solo canoe trips. And then I got that master's, that, that uh, scholarship for the master's, which brought me out here. So that's a very long-winded answer to where I am right now and why I'm here. So, so you had some experience with the canoe and then you got the master's, but it, it seems like you're doing the uh, the martial arts full-time. Is that true? I have two full-time jobs, okay. maybe three if you count being a parent. Okay. Uh, certainly the, the martial arts through grapplearts.com and selfdefensetutorials.com. That is something that's been going on for a long time. I started Grapple Arts in 2002. We've got you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of YouTube videos out, which is how most people find out about me. I've got a podcast going, got a, an email newsletter going. I've got a really in-depth blog, just because I've been doing it for so long. And arguably, that is how I've ended up using my education, is to have a sense of how to write. I'm not afraid of writing. So a lot of people are, are intimidated by having to write an email or write an article or write something that's going to be read. But I'm not, thanks to having written all those endless papers back in university. It, it was a big shift to not write academically, right? I, I take a look at the earlier stuff that I wrote and it's it's so dry. So Yeah, you're not going to get a lot of readers writing no. uh, academically about this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think I've gotten much better writing, you know, there's much better message to audience match now. Uh, so the, certainly the, the martial arts um, teaching, and I don't have a school, I do all my teaching online or remotely. And the reason for that is my second full time job is being a firefighter. So in Vancouver, in the Vancouver area, uh, firefighting schedules are four days on four days off or more correctly, five days on three days off, but it's an eight day rotation. And that would make running a school really difficult. I can teach next Tuesday day, but then the following Tuesday, I'd only be able to teach on the nights and it just, it would have gotten too complicated. So I started out with a small little online presence selling a single product and that did all right. That did all right. And then you know, as the, uh, 
as life moved on, it, it's certainly grown. So yeah, I, I split my time doing the martial arts stuff and doing the firefighting stuff, but then doing as much outdoor stuff as I can squeeze in. So that big, long last trip, which is why you contacted me, that thousand mile trip from Mississippi, Saskatchewan to Arviat in Nunavut, uh, that comes after sort of a 20 year layoff of doing major solo trips because of kids, right? The last big trip I did prior to that was a three week paddle on the Nahani. And I want to say in 2003, so it's been a long time. And fortunately, you know, you get older, <laughs> your body breaks down a little bit, but at least having done it before, it took one big variable out of the equation. And that was the variable of, can I do this mentally? The question was now, can I do it physically? And that's always a valid question. But I remember the first couple long solo trips I did, I did all the preparation. I knew I had the physical skills. I knew I could light fires. I knew I could paddle white water. I could, knew I could portage and set up a tent in the driving rain. But there was always that niggling fear in the back of my mind. What a big, tough outdoor guy goes outside and is on week two of his you know, eight week trip and, and he feels lonely and he wants to talk to people. And he, that, that, that was what I was concerned about. And fortunately that didn't happen. So at, at least I knew that, you know, that was one big question mark that I didn't have to worry about on this last trip. Now, now you mentioned, you know, a thousand miles canoeing trip after almost being off, essentially off of big trips for 20 years. Do you wish you would have sprinkled some in there more or was this just the way life worked out and it's just completely impossible when you've got a couple young kids and uh, you're homeschooling them and then you know you go through a divorce oh, hey honey sorry we're going through a bitter divorce battle right now but would you mind taking the kids for like oh i don't know two months while i go off <laughs> right. and pursue this adventure it's just not gonna fly no it's not so gonna I, fly at all on my instagram i actually posted about this because my one indulgence on this last trip was that I was uploading pictures and kind of a travel diary to Instagram, which then went to my blog as well. And, you know, I didn't bring any books. I didn't bring any fishing gear, despite it being amazing fishing. I didn't bring any movies on my iPhone. I didn't bring anything, but I did sort of blog and I did upload photos. And on one of the ones that I, you know, I couldn't see the responses that I was getting from out in the bush because it was all one-way data transmission from using a very small satellite dish because you're super way beyond cell phone range. Oh, yeah. You're way outside of Wi-Fi and there, there's, you know, there's not even skip the dishes. There's no nothing. And uh, But one of the posts that I did really well, I talked about how this really was 20 years in the making. And one big part of that actually was making peace with the ex-wife. I mean, we're not together, but finally building relationships to enable something like this. And, and that's an important thing to remember whenever anyone does something amazing. I mean, who was it? It was Ross Edgley, the guy who swam around the UK. Uh, he, he, you try and get him on the podcast. He's a pretty amazing guy. Heck yeah. Um, I'll put in a good word for you. Okay. Yeah, please. I do. don't, I don't know him at all, <laughs> okay. but I'll put in a good word for you anyhow. Uh, but oh, that would have been not possible if there hadn't, like how many people were in support roles for that trip, right? There's guys driving the boats, there were physiotherapists, there were probably nutritionists, there might've been doctors on call. Film crew, maybe? 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like he a lot was, of people. He's definitely pushing the edges. He's pushing the limits of human performance. But it's not in a vacuum. And so, yes, it was me out there paddling and lining and dragging my boat up rapids and through the forest and, you know, staring into the teeth of an Arctic gale and all that. But I did have support. Somebody was taking care of my kids. Somebody was occasionally sending me satellite text updates about the weather that I could be expecting the next day, right? It, it's, and ultimately, bottom line, if something had gone terribly wrong, if I'd sank an ax into my femur, or I'd snapped my tibia, or I came down with some horrendous infection or disease, I could have pushed a little button on my Garmin inReach, and within, well, let's say eight to 48 hours, probably, gotten evacuated. And that's not a luxury that, you know, Shackleton had when he was right. <laughs> struggling across Antarctica. Probably wasn't a luxury you had 20 years ago. It, well, 20 years ago, I had something called an emergency location transmitter, which is about the size mm -hmm. of a brick okay. with an antenna. And it had an on-off function. And you would turn it on, and basically you'd hope for a passing aircraft to pick up your distress signal. Then they would roughly try and triangulate where you were. And they would send out the Chinook helicopter, the Canadian forces, Canadian Armed Forces helicopter from Edmonton would go out. And I don't know what you would pay for a Chinook helicopter, but those things are gigantic. And if I'm guessing, it'd probably be $10,000 an hour. So there, there were options, but they were very bad options. And 20 or 30 years before that, those things wouldn't have been affordable. And when we look at the people who were traveling these routes, even if they were just trappers going up there every year or natives coming down to trade, they didn't have any of these options. We live in a part of the reason we're able to push so much harder is because the consequences of failure are, are somewhat mitigated some of the time, mm -hmm. right? I mean, That's if, if you come down with, uh, an embolism at seven and a half thousand feet on Everest, there's a chance I don't know what the upper limit of the helicopters is now, but it's, you know, there's a, you can get evacuated off of some of those camps by helicopter in a way that, you know, Mallory and Irving couldn't in the 1920s, their only option was to die. So yeah. So now you've if, basically, I'm a huge convert and huge advocate of the, the technology that's available. And, uh, I've interviewed Will Gadd on my podcast. Will Gadd is the guy, the Red Bull ice climber guy who climbed Niagara Falls in the middle of winter. And he basically was saying, look, if, you, if you're going out in the backcountry and you're not carrying some kind of spot device or an inReach, you're a moron, right? It, it, you're being completely irresponsible because when you do break something, or even if you come across somebody else who's broken something, you know, Forget you, you're, say you're willing to take the risks. You're willing to do, a, I don't know, a 50 mile hike in the backcountry uh, through rugged terrain, and you're willing to assume the risks. Well, what if you find, I don't know, a father and son who are there and the father snapped his femur? You can help the situation greatly by taking advantage of the technology that's available. You know, and like I said, I use the Garmin inReach. They don't sponsor me. I'm not a representative. I don't make any money. But those things are bloody amazing. Right. They can send basic satellite text messages. You can send a message. And to my understanding, if I push the emergency button, somebody gets back to me and says, hey, what kind of emergency is it? And if I was to say, I don't know, uh, I've lost my tent, but I'm all right. 
then in theory, we could organize somebody to drop off a tent. I'd pay for it, of course. It'd be the most expensive tent I would have ever bought. But they can maybe drop a tent out of the sky on my head. Whereas if I say I've, I'm currently pinching my femoral artery <laughs> and uh, it's hard to type with one hand or I'm going to bleed to death, right. they can come get you. All right. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Right. And so I've got a spot and I use it. And yeah, for, I mean, it's like having a life insurance almost that's pretty stinking affordable when you, when you really factor in what your, you know, what, what the risks are. And uh, yeah, I definitely take that with me anywhere I go. And now for you and your trip, man, you went, you went north by northwest, I mean, northeast up to um, the Hudson Bay. And I mean, when you look at, you you said a word before that called Mississippi. And when I first looked that up, I'm like, Mississippi? No, no, no. (laughs) I'm like, that's Mississippi. Yeah, we're not mispronouncing that. Mississippi. And when you look that up on a map, it looks like just an arbitrary point. And honestly, this entire checkerboard of lakes and, and, and kind of scrubby forests, how the heck did you choose that as a starting point? And how, I mean, where do you go? Is that part of something? It just looks like one of the blue spots on its giant, yeah, like I said, checkerboard of, of lakes. Well, that's, that's the amazing thing about the Canadian Shield, which, like, like I talked about earlier, covers parts of Minnesota, lots of Ontario, lots of Manitoba, mm-hmm. and parts of northern Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan, you know, if anyone has ever driven through Saskatchewan, they've driven through the prairies. So it's flat as a pancake. It, it just, you know, the sky is beautiful, but the biggest hill out there, you know, might be 10 feet high. Yeah. But if you drive north, you eventually go from the prairies into uh, this Canadian Shield area in the boreal forest. And so years and years and years ago, uh, 25 years ago, I I spent a summer guiding up there, uh, canoe guiding, teaching whitewater canoeing, guiding trips for Churchill River Canoe Outfitters. And the Churchill River Canoe Outfitters is on the Churchill River. Churchill River is super important in the fur trade because it was a huge artery that went east to west. And basically for three, 400 years was an artery of travel for people catching furs first obviously it was beaver fur beaver pelt because there was a hat craze in england and beaver pelts were going for a, a lot of money so you know some varying combination of natives bringing beaver pelts down the river to voyagers heading up river to go get the beaver pelts from the natives they would travel on this river and this river is really just a series of lakes for the most part big lakes connected by rapids and the amazing thing about the Canadian Shield is that there's just so much water. It's It was just recently deglaciated. By recently, depending on where I was on the trip, we're about 12,000 years to about 6,000 years uh, post-glaciation. That's not a lot of time for soil to develop. So you've basically got rock and then a little bit of dirt on top of it in places, and then moss, and then spruce trees mixed in with other things. There's the occasional larch. But it's it's very much the classical boreal forest environment with tons of water. You, know, you look at some of the aerial photography there, or Google Maps, or you know um, just a topo map. 
and it looks like 40% of the landscape is water, which helps explain why there are billions and billions and billions and billions of mosquitoes out there because there's no shortage of water for them to breed in. Uh, so yeah, I, I, Mississippi's on the Churchill River. So it's basically where the road north, if you wanted to get to Mississippi, you'd go to Saskatchewan, you'd hang a left or you'd hang a right, you'd head north, go as far as the paved road takes you. Then when the paved road stops, go for another hour on the dirt road. And then the last little town that's right on the, and by town, we mean like, I don't know, 150, 200 people. Uh, it's right on the Churchill River. It's actually a beautiful little town. The Churchill River, even though it's far north, it's pretty warm. So if you ever want to learn how to canoe on a classic canoeing route, I can't think of a better place. And so that's where I started the trip. It was partially for logistical reasons. The uh, figuring out where to start was a little bit like, okay, what country do I want to see? And how far can I go in the 50 days that I have? Because I, I had 50 days, which was also sort of the upper limit of food that I could carry in my boat. Because I wanted this, for some strange masochistic reason, wanted it to be completely self-supporting. And so that meant you're, you're becoming constrained by the amount of food. And twice in my life, I've pulled out of a town with 50 days of food, and that's a lot of weight to be carrying in a boat. How, how much is that? I mean, what is that? Can you visualize how big is that? Because that's, that's uh, I, I didn't, two, I was going to ask no, you that. How much food did you carry? If you, you resupply, but you answered my question, and that's crazy. Well, man. you know, those big waterproof packs, like the, they're basically the big rubber bags with the roll down tops yes. and then straps. Mm -hmm. The better part of two of those. Oh, wow. So wow. really heavy. Uh, I would say 50 days of food, probably carrying 4,000 calories a day. So that's, if that was completely dry, that would be two and a half pounds of food a day. But of course it's not completely dry. So I'd say somewhere in the vicinity of three, four pounds a day. My and goodness. so let's go with four pounds by the time you add in fuel. Yeah, it's a couple hundred pounds of food. No kidding. That's another person. Which is, which is, which is one thing when it's in a boat. It's quite another when you're trying to get it across a portage that has, you know, not been traveled in for, you know, 50 years and there's been numerous forest fires go through and just lay waste to it. Now you're climbing over trees or, or even just windfall areas where, uh, in recent years there have been a, a lot of extreme wind events in that part of, of the world. Basically, it's like a tornado, except it goes sideways and mows down all the trees. So you'll come to areas where it's just, it looks like a giant bulldozer or an army of bulldozers has driven along and flattened a bunch of trees. And what it is, is supposedly, is one of these sideways tornadoes. So portaging through that is a lot of fun. And by fun, I mean, <laughs> I'd rather gouge my eyes out with a blunt spoon than do it again. Yeah, that's beyond type, that's like type three fun. It's not easy to just bypass type two. My goodness, man. So, you know, you, you obviously prepare pretty well for this. You're, you're in good shape. Um, logistically, I can imagine how just crazy this must have been to figure out. Um, but I'd love to talk about, and, and I, you know, I, I know a little bit cause I researched your, your trip and just, you know, figuring out where to go and the amount of maps you had, what, what was the experience like? Were, were things going to plan say two, three weeks in, or, or, or were you already facing a lot of obstacles early on? There were a lot of obstacles right from the beginning. 
And part of those were self-created. Part of it in the sense that this would have been a lovely two-month trip, right? If I'd had two months, if I'd had eight or nine weeks, I could have taken the occasional day off. I could have, you know, I'm just, ah, I'm feeling a bit sore today. Maybe I'll just make this a four-hour day. Oh, that's a lovely island. I should camp there. Maybe do some fishing, although I don't really understand the lure of fishing unless it's to eat. But grayling is delicious. Why don't we catch some grayling this afternoon? Why don't we hike up on that esker and have a look around and see what kind of animal tracks we can find. Maybe we can find a wolf den or something. But it wasn't. I'd really picked sort of the maximum distance that I could reasonably go. And I I mean, I finished it, so I succeeded. But I didn't know that I would be able to succeed. So I was pushing myself right off the right off the jump pretty much as hard as I could. And my physical conditioning, I'll say my logistics were excellent. I, I pretty much nailed the preparation. And for anyone planning a long trip like this or any large anything, you can't underestimate the, the role that logistics plays. Logistics mm-hmm. is king. It is. If you don't, for example, how much fuel do you bring? Given that each extra ounce of fuel is going to slow you down, how much fuel do you bring? Well, the answer actually is 0.1 liter per person per day. Gives you a margin, but in retrospect, I could have gotten by with less because I wasn't having a warm breakfast. I wasn't making tea. I wasn't making coffee. I wasn't making soup. Most evenings, I would boil some water and have a hot dinner. So I probably actually could have gotten away with less. So, but I had a margin there. The logistics of connecting this river to that river, where do I get resupply? Do, or do I get resupply? If things go completely sideways, you know, let me make a list of every um, bush plane company within a thousand miles that could, and helicopter company, and then get their cell phone numbers so that I can text or call people to get me the hell out of there if something goes catastrophically wrong. You know, that's an afternoon right there. I was an afternoon on the phone, talking to different companies, finding out what kind of planes they have. Boy, they only have twin otters. <laughs> that's going to be a really expensive evacuation for one person. Oh, this, these people here have got Cessnas, but they don't do external loads. So if I get evacuated by them, I've got to be willing to leave the boat behind in the bush, right? And then documenting all this. There's an afternoon. And that's just one of many, many, many logistical tasks they have to do. Actually, what I did, and I cribbed this again from Will Gad, was a spreadsheet. So I had a spreadsheet, and one of them was you know, transportation. How do I get my gear up north? How do I get it back south? How do I you know, ship it with this company? How do I ship it with that company? Another tab would be about food. What food do I want? How many calories per item of food? Another was about the medical kit. What am I going to carry? Everything you carry is uh, is extra weight. It's actually funny. When I start talking about this, you can really tell my audience is sort of the martial arts audience. They're all like, you know, bring tampons because you can push them into a bullet hole if, if, and stop yourself from bleeding out. And <laughs> right, right. It's like, man. In case you get attacked. I, I, I appreciate where this is coming from. But on the other hand, you know, there isn't going to be a gunfight out there. They're coming, kind of coming from a bit of a paramilitary or some of them were coming kind of from military or paramilitary or policing point of view. And really, I mean, the main thing you need to worry about is infection, different kinds of infection, Jardia, 
burns, cuts. Me, I have a few extra concerns because I did have a kidney transplant five years ago that stopped me from dying. So I had to carry some extra medication for that. But, you know, so a whole tab on the spreadsheet was medicines and first aid kit. And then another one was repair kit. Another one was, well, I included this in the preparation of the trip. How do I stop my business from imploding while I'm gone? Right. Who's going to handle the email? What videos get released when on YouTube? Very relatable concern for a lot of people. You know, you can't just oh, for sure. walk away from life. No, I, I, I'm, I'm in the thick of it. I mean, my, I got teenage kids. I got kids less than 10. I got a business. It took me, you know, like I said, I have to give a lot of credit for this trip to the ex-wife because she took the kids for a couple of months uh, and to build that relationship took time. Yeah. And so the logistics for a trip like this are paramount. The physical preparation, I was a bit hamstrung because I'd been dealing with elbow tendonitis for a couple of years. It hadn't gone away. I'd buggered my shoulder doing jujitsu, not tapping out. You know, so I was caught, I was rolling with a guy, sparring with a guy who was lighter than me, older than me, not as experienced as me. And I was goofing around and he caught me in something like a shoulder lock. And I was like, I'm not tapping to this from this guy. Come on. And I managed to get out. But in the process, buggered my shoulder. I think I tore my supraspinatus. And so I went into this trip with my hip hurting, my elbow hurting, my shoulder hurting. I was like, man, how am I going to do this? And it prevented me from doing a lot of the conditioning that I would have liked to have done. So it was on the job conditioning. And it made the, so that was the main concern of the first couple of weeks was the body just hurting as you're making the adaptation from, I'll say my cardio was in half decent shape, but muscularly and, you know, in terms of generating power and in terms of muscular endurance, I was nowhere near what I needed to be at. And so there was a lot of physical pain for the first couple of weeks as the body made its adjustment and I learned to tweak my paddling and I learned to tweak the things I did to not irritate the body parts that were, were not happy. And in the end, it actually ended up being good for those body parts. It, it turns out that the, you know, and I knew this in theory, but it's nice to know it in practice, the better your, your, the technique is on your paddling, on your paddle stroke, the less arms it is, the more torso and the more core it is. And so you're not actually irritating things like shoulders and, and elbows. So, it was my form of rehab. So anyone who's got a bum shoulder or a bum elbow, what I recommend is a 50-day solo canoe trip through the Canadian Arctic, and you might feel better. There you go. That, that's all it takes. Just, just useful days. advice. <laughs> so you know, you were, I'm sure you were seeking solitude on this trip. Do you? I mean, how isolated did you really feel out there? Because anyone listening, I highly encourage you to just. Pull out your phone, if you're on a laptop, whatever, look at a map of this area. It is, it is out there. Did you enjoy that? Yes. Yes, I did. The solitude was a big draw of it. Now, I think fundamentally, I'm an introvert, and I really like the Myers-Briggs definition of introvert versus extrovert. So I am an introvert by the Myers-Briggs definition, which is that I, I'm perfectly capable of interacting with people. I'm not sitting there rocking back and forth in a fetal position at a party. But when I'm tired, when I'm run down, in order to recharge and reset, I like to be on my own. And by that definition, I'm, well, 
by the definition put forward by the Myers-Briggs people, and that's the only Myers-Briggs definition I know, is that you know, that makes me an introvert. Whereas an extrovert, if they're feeling run down or feeling tired, they like to call up a couple of friends and go dancing or you know, go and hang out at a cafe where there's lots of people and engage and that energizes them. That doesn't energize me. So being alone, I found uh, amazing. How isolated was I? Well, there's really seven parts of this journey. There was down the Churchill River, a couple hundred kilometers. Then there was going upstream on the Reindeer River. Then there was crossing Reindeer Lake, which is a gigantic lake. It's probably 180 miles north to south. There's parts of it that are so wide that you can't see the other shore. The curvature of the earth hides the far shore. So that would have been the third leg. The fourth leg was heading upstream on the Cochrane River. Now we're getting pretty remote. Uh, about halfway there, halfway up the Cochrane, I met my last people. That was at a native reservation called Lac Brochet. And so for the day after that, I saw a couple of boats in the distance. And then for the next 22 days, I saw nobody. So then the, the final legs were crossing over from the Cochrane River to the upper reaches of the Flay uh, Louisa, which is a really obscure river, which went downstream to Newton Lake, which is an amazing lake. It's one of the coolest lakes I've ever been on because the southern part of it is in the trees. It's in the boreal forest. And then as you paddle north, you paddle through the tree line out into the tundra. There's probably a 30-mile stretch where it makes that transition. And it's abandoned, right? It used to be, there used to be a lot of trappers there. There used to be a thriving set of fishing lodges that were there that have all been abandoned. So you find some pretty cool artifacts. And then the final leg was downstream from the, from Newton Lake on the Thle Louisa down to Hudson Bay. So that was, that's the seven legs of the journey. So I didn't see anybody for the last three and a half legs, the last part of the Cochrane River, the upper part of the Thle Louisa. Newton Lake and the Lower Thle Louisa. So that's that was 22 days of isolation, but it was not complete isolation. It you know I did have a sat phone for emergencies. You know, I called in to check on my dad. I called in once or twice to check on my kids. I had the sat uh, text communication through the Garmin. So I had a couple people I would check in with there, and I didn't really find that that changed that that the main part of it. The bottom line is you're still isolated for 23 and a half hours a day. And then you send a couple of texts at the end of the day. Hey, everything's going great. You know, talk to you soon. So there, there was some connection there, but I don't feel that it changed the nature of the trip and the nature of the isolation and the, the, the general feel of it. And probably just added some safety margin, which is good because I was really pushing myself and I got skunked by the weather. It was good to have that communication there in case things went poorly. In fact, that inReach was always on me. You know, it was tucked in my life jacket. In my life jacket, I had my camera, my Garmin, uh, a compass, fire-making supplies, and a mosquito net. Just the thought being that if, if I lost everything in a rapid, if my boat just got cracked in half and the contents, a yard sail for the next 100 kilometers downriver, that I could still make it to shore uh, and survive for long enough to to get picked up. Again, this is part one. Tune in next week for part two. First of all, 
Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.